You're listening to the winning literary show, Off the Shelf Books Talk Radio, live with host Denise Turney, author of the books Long Walk Up, Portia, Love More Over Me, Spiral, Love Has Many Faces, and Rosetta's Great Hope. Turn up your dial and get ready for a blast of feature author interviews, 411 on book festivals, writing conferences, and so much more. Ready? Let's go. Don't limit yourself. Many people limit themselves to what they think they can do. You can go as far as your mind lets you. What you believe, remember, you can achieve. And that's from Mary Kay Ash, and I want to welcome you to this Saturday, July the 10th, Off the Shelf Books Talk Radio. And I just want to share that with you one more time, that thought that we want to kick off today's Off the Shelf show with. Don't limit yourself. Many people limit themselves to what they think they can do. You can go as far as your mind lets you. What you believe, remember, you can achieve. And that's from May K.S. And for those of you who are our loyal listeners, 16 years, you guys, on air, I want to thank you. I just want to pause and honor our loyal listeners who have been with us for the this 16-year journey, and if this is your first time scrolling the dial, however you tune in off the shelf, we're on so many different platforms. I just want to let you know that you are listening to the Winning Book Radio Show off the shelf, and we have an awesome artist on deck for you this morning. But before we do, I want to I want to focus on the importance of daily incorporating daily. Re- Daily techniques, daily things you do, daily habits, daily, uh, you don't want to get caught up in routine to the point your brain goes on autopilot and you start missing seeing important clues out here in this world. But to have enough in your day that you practice self-love and you practice self-awareness. And I wrote a book called Awakening, Awakening Those Inner Blessings. There's just so many miracles so many miracles that are just waiting for us to receive them. And I encourage you to get a copy of a, a, just a, Awakening to Those Inner 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 Blessings, Those Inner Miracles. And you can get it. It's in ebook or in print. Uh, it's at Amazon, Barnes & Noble. If you don't see it on the shelves, I would tell people about any book that I, I've written. Just ask the clerk for it and they can get a copy for you because it's carried by the largest book distributors in the world. You can learn more about it at my website, chistel.com, C-H-I-S-T-E-L-L.com. And now let us go. <coughs> and now let us go and meet our very special off-the-shelf guest. And our special off-the-shelf guest this morning is Lynn McLaughlin. And as she noted at her website, Lynn has a mission to lead and empower people to make conscious and positive choices, in addition to helping people to live a healthier and happier life. And what a wonderful life, a life aim. And so in addition to helping people to live a healthier and happier life, Lynn aims to help empower people so that they in turn can give to others. And she does this work with integrity and in a way that leads people to respond differently to their stressors, whatever your stressor might be. She's also the host of Taking the Helm Podcast. I love that title. And she's a proven public speaker who works with people, whether they've experienced a crisis or are seeking better change for a variety of reasons. She works with aspiring authors, helping them to take their book, books from ideal to successfully published. And we're going to talk about that more later during this feature interview. And additionally, she is the author of the books Jackson and Steering Through It, Please, please, please check her out online at lynnmclaughlin.com. And I'm going to spell that L-Y-N-N-M-C-L-A-U-G-H-L-I-N.com. And again, L-Y-N-N-M-C-L-A-U-G-H-L-I-N.com. And we are just so honored to have her with us on Off the Shelf this morning. Welcome to Off the Shelf, Lynn. Oh, thank you very much, Denise. It's such a pleasure and a, and a great opportunity. I think you might need a, a drink of water. Are you okay? <laughs> yes, I am. You know, I thought about oh, I appreciate your uh, concern. I thought about getting up, and I might somewhere in the interview. I don't know what happened all of a sudden and get some water, <laughs> but thank you. So, Lynn, to kick off the show, I ask every guest, like, the first three to four questions are the same. 
just to give our listeners some backstory on the guest. So to start today's show, can you tell off-the-shelf listeners where you grew up and what life was like for you growing up? Mm-hmm. I thought a lot about this because I could go, I could take the whole hour, but I won't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, well, um, I was born in Windsor, Ontario. Um, yeah, yeah, we are actually um, – uh, what am I saying? We're the – the, the town I live in right now, sorry, I digress, is the, the I'm trying to give people a context of where we are, the most northern, or sorry, southern town in Canada. So where I live, ah. we're actually south of Michigan. We're south of Michigan. So, oh. yeah, we're right across the border from Detroit, but Detroit is north of us. It's very hard for people to think about that context, but you consider when um, Ontario has a boot that kind of goes underneath Michigan, and I'm at the bottom of that boot. <laughs> That's a great place to be. Okay. Right in between Saint Lake, Lake, Lake St. Clair and Lake Erie, we're kind of in the middle. Um, but I grew up in a little town called McGregor, a tiny, tiny little uh, uh, historic French-Canadian town. Uh, St. Uh, Saint was the name of the school. St. Clements was the name of the church. Um, long story short, uh, when, we, when we moved there, it was the year I was in grade four. I was nine years old, and it was the third home that we moved in. So back story. Uh, my father was working over at the Detroit Free Press at the time. Uh, that's when um, everything happened in Detroit. He lost his job, and he moved into a musical business and became a leader of a band, very, very talented man, and, uh, and ended up traveling, and traveling all over, uh, working in clubs, and we ended up moving three times that year. And so we ended wow. up in McGregor, renting a home. My mother became a single parent uh, mom for four of us. I was the oldest. You know what that's like. I think a lot of our listeners, I was the oldest is a lot of um, responsibility. And uh, she worked in a dry cleaning factory to, to make it work for all of us. So um, I think of my childhood experiences and watching some of the things she did to get through. Um, I remember her putting on boots up to her hips and going out and shoveling out the, uh, what's it called? Not a cistern. Uh, you know, where things get slowed out to, it was, it was, oh, it was I got you. okay. yeah, I can't think of the <laughs> word right now, but she went out and did that herself. Um, yeah, we had well water. It was, it was really quite something. And I'm not, my dad was less and less present, present and eventually remarried. And I have two beautiful half brothers. We're all very, very close. Um, but yeah, so, so that's kind of my childhood, um, uh, where, where I grew up, a lot of experiences being, you know, supportive of a mom who was a, who was a, a single parent. Um, we Go were, ahead, Mom. Um, yeah, oh, my gosh. We lost her uh, 17 years ago to lung cancer. Uh, um, I'd love to be able to prove there was a link to that dry cleaning factory, but she had smoked as a young person. And, of course, you, you know, that kind of muddies the water. But I, I talk to her every day, every single day still. I miss her, miss her terribly. And my dad and I are very close. He's 82 now. Uh, and I just want to say this about uh, the history here. Even though their separation was not, I mean, it was amicable, shall we say, um, my mother never said anything bad about him. She actually drove us to meet my two half-brothers and what was going to be the person who was going to become my stepmother so that we would continue to have a relationship with our father. So, I mean, there's something for other, other people to listen to, as angry as we are as, as torn up as we are, as hurt as we are, she rose above all of that and put the four of us first. So that is the reason I have an amazing relationship with my father and my two half-brothers, who are over in Michigan, actually. <laughs> oh, so. what a blessing, what a blessing. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, you mm-hmm. know what, and there are parents who do do that. There are people, you don't hear about it a lot, but they the, the, the child is first, and they want their child to be healthy and, and know they're loved and have good experiences, so they set their child up. To, to mm-hmm. experience that in this world. Now, when you were a little girl, Lynn, what did you want to be when you grew up? What, what did you dream of being when you were a kid? <laughs> when I grew up, I want to be. Yeah, I wanted to be wanted because I, ha- I need to share that I changed because of an experience. I think, I hope a lot of people haven't had the same experience. But uh, that third school that I went to in grade four, I always wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to be a teacher oh. from the time I was young. I was an avid reader. Oh, my gosh. I actually wrote it. I wrote my own book when I was in grade seven. I wish I could find that thing now, but I loved reading. I loved writing. I wanted to be a teacher, uh, but I changed in grade four, and it was the very first day in this new school. Um, the teacher asked me to read, and the whole class laughed at me. They all laughed. I read so quickly, 
so quickly they thought, thought it was hilarious. And for me, of course, I don't know why they're laughing. I took it as a total. I just, I don't even know these people. I haven't even been out for recess yet. I haven't spoken to anyone. And the whole class was laughing at me. And from that point on, I, I, I just, I don't know. I, I changed my mind. I'm not sure what I wanted to be, but I thought, no way. I don't want, <laughs> this is not going to be my wow. from now on. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, that was an experience. So I ended no, up going on to other things. I actually, when I first went to university, I thought I was going to be a social worker. And long story short, I ended up back in teaching. But it wasn't until uh, I was 19 years old or so after one year of university and social work that I thought, no, I, I, teaching is what I need to do. So, yeah, wow. that was a traumatic so you experience. Back, <laughs> you know, you know what, you're like maybe, we've had a couple of people who come on the show and they they wanted to do writing and right away, and then they said they they got a a, a a report back on something they wrote from their teacher, and they said nope, not too many red marks. I'm like, right, and yeah. years, decades, mm. for some of them went by before they came back to writing. So now you've written two books. Who or what inspired you to pursue writing and book publishing? Well, I was always a journaler. I've always been a journaler. I still journal now. So. Um, and I let that go after after my third child. I was journaling right up until the time that I found out I was expecting with my third child. And, of course, you know what that happens when you're in a career working full-time with three children. That got swept aside. Um, and it was a life-threatening illness, really. It was when I got stopped dead in my tracks and uh, started journaling, journaling again to get through. That's how I got through that year of my life. That's one of the reasons. I mean, lots of the support network and everything around me with my family, but writing is what got me through. And that's, that, those journal entries is what led to my, to my first book called Steering Through It. Yeah, which we're going, which we're going to talk about. So you kind of segue into talking about staring through. And now I was going to ask you if it's autobiographical for our listeners who might be learning about the book for the first time. Is it autobiographical? And if not, just again for our listeners, where did the idea for the story come from? It's absolutely audio, auto. It's my autobiography. It's a memoir, but it's also been written by my family. So um, I basically. I would say probably six to seven months, no, maybe a year, because it took me pretty much a year to recover and go back to work. I thought, there, there's something here. We had so much learning. I mean, just the word when I, when I was sitting in the neurosurgeon's office and he said uh, I had to have a craniotomy. What, what, you know, what, what's a crane? There was just so much to learn that I thought, you know, we, there's things here that we can help other people with. And it wasn't just my learning. As the patient, it was my family's and my friends learning as caregivers. So when I had the draft, I went through all my journal entries, and I thought, what would be meaningful to people? I created a draft. I gave it to one of my sisters, and she said, you have to publish this, Lynn, but you're missing a whole part. I said, what do you mean? She said, everything that was happening in the background. I said, but I don't know, Colleen. How am I supposed to write about it when I don't know about it? I said, would you write about one experience that you can vividly remember? And she wrote about the day that she found out. Um, and I cry every time I read that in my passage. So then I asked other people in my family. My father wrote about the day of my craniotomy. Uh, my, my daughter's written in here three times. Uh, my brother, my other sister. There's, just a, there's specific incidences that, that are vivid in their memory that they could write about as if it was that day. So the stories of caregivers are also in here. So, yes, it's an autobiography. And uh, for listeners who are writing nonfiction, and I know you've covered this many times, Denise, for me to get consent from my neurosurgeon to to include his notes and conversations with him, it took me. It took probably took four months for me to do it, but I got it. I got written consent to, to include that information, because when you're using real pe- people's names and information, something you have to do that as a, as an author. So, I went on a little bit of a tangent there, but I hope that answered your question. Oh yeah. So can you get? So you, your family uh, also contributes, and that's a that's a first that I've ever heard with an autobiography written, written that kind of way, do you take people from steering through it, is it written in a form where you take them from your childhood through when, uh, and what is the, the life experience that you're dealing with in steering through it? How old were you when this happened to you? Mm-hmm. You said you helped journal your way through it. But when you when the story itself, where does it open? Does it open your childhood? They see you growing up with your siblings, your family, and then you have this experience, when, when does it begin or do you just start when you first 
discover you you have this illness and what it, what it, what are you dealing with how old are you dealing with it and and exactly what do you focus on in the book well i feel like i want to go re- i want to go write a couple more chapters now <laughs> you just asked me that question okay so i was uh 51 years old and um Long story short, I had just started a, 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 an, an executive position with a local school board. I was one of 10 people on the senior team of 34 students, 34,000 students. And I would say for about the year before that, I was an elementary school, uh, school principal in a very challenging um, school. Regardless, um, I just want to make the point that I had symptoms for two years, and I explained them away. I, I thought, oh, it's my age. Oh, it's my hormones. Oh, my goodness, it's the stress at, the, at work. It's the steep learning curve in this new executive job. And it was 10 months into that um, job that I finally went for an MRI. And the book starts the MRI because that's when, okay, my doctor made the final, well, made it very clear to me. At this point, I was waking up in the morning with excruciating headaches, I, I, bear, I had Advil beside my bed in the morning. I would take three, two or three Advil before I could even get out of bed. That is a huge oh. red flag if you have not gone to bed with a headache and you're waking up with one that bad for, for a long period of time or for a regular period of time, you need to have it looked into. So he sent me for the MRI. So that's where the book starts, the day of the MRI where... I sat up from the machine, and they sent me immediately to the emergency room of the hospital. So I knew wow. I wasn't getting good news. Yeah, yeah. So that's where the book starts. We, well, thank you for sharing that. We've had a few, maybe, you, maybe you're the third or fourth uh, guest we've had who had like a brain tumor, and everybody's experience with anything is different. But um, a lot of people, they didn't know they had one. And I guess with, with anything that that's going wrong with us, maybe we we don't we don't want to deal with that this could be happening, so we just ignore it. And then something happens, and you 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 get to a place where you have no choice. Maybe it's somebody else. We had a guest on. Her son went out to eat with her. He hadn't seen her in a couple of months, and he said something about her seeing God. So he asked her to get tested, and she did have a brain tumor, but. Oh. It's how people you have it and you don't even know you have it, and it could be with a, with a lot of things. So at the start of steering to it, you write about why you developed the brain tumor, wondering if there was something for you to learn, if you were being punished, etc. And after mm-hmm. after you've worked you've worked with others, and you, you your mission to help people live a better life. Have you found this to be common, that when something happens, we develop an illness, something happens, it could be something tragic, and we want to know why is this happening to me? And then we start to fill in the gaps with, oh, this is why it happened, that's why it happened. Have you found in working with others that that's common? Absolutely. Oh, no question about it. And uh, I I think I've had – I've only been doing my podcast for a year and a half now, but – um, I would say the majority of my guests, when they're talking about a crisis, a tragedy, a, a traumatic experience, everybody goes through that period of uh, not accepting it, for one thing. Why me? And then, the, you know, is the universe trying to tell me something? What signs have I missing? What can I take this experience for um, to, to, to make my life better? Um, I interviewed one person, and I wish I could remember her name, where um, pain, she really believes the pain, like pain can be a good thing. Experiencing that pain helps us see things in a different way, in a new light, and opens new doors. So I would say I actually can't think of an, uh, one person that I've interviewed in that context that hasn't seen it as, a, as an awakening for them. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I would say the same thing. You know, I, I, I would say back in those days, uh, I mean, I was working a 70-hour work week some weeks, driving 45 minutes to and from work. I had three teenage children at the time. My husband was a police officer. When you talk about a treadmill. My treadmill, I would have been one of those people falling off. <laughs> you know oh, my goodness. And having to jump back on. So, I mean, yeah. So, I mean, it was it, clearly, clearly things were things weren't, I was not in a good place. And, I mean, I, I do wish the universe could have been a little more kinder in, in telling me, in, in making me slow down um, um, because it was a, a drastic halt and a total change in my life, but my perspective, I never went back, never went back, and I promised myself I wouldn't ever go back. And when I went back to work, 
almost a year later. And a lot of people didn't think I would, Denise. You know, you can't, you can't come back to a job like this with, uh, with a, with a, uh, after a craniotomy and having a brain tumor and now an acquired brain injury, and I proved them wrong. But I, when I went back to work, I promised myself I would never let myself get back on the treadmill again, and guess what happened? You did. Uh, it was five years later, five years later, and it happened slowly and slowly and slowly. And then my retirement date came up, and I thought, nope, it's happening again. I handed in my retirement um, papers, and uh, I've been uh, working part-time for three years and absolutely loving it. But if I hadn't had that experience, I think, uh, I, I don't know what it would have happened. I probably would have had some type of a breakdown. I don't know what direction it would have gone in. I'm not sure my family, uh, it would, I mean, my family was already being affected just because of that treadmill. So anyway, uh, off I go on a tangent You know, again, this but. is a topic, I mean, that um, I'm thinking about some of my colleagues, even where I work, and I've seen people do it, where the, this pace is, uh, well, as uh, uh, a movie came out or, uh, or a book, I'm 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 either dancing as fast as I can or whatever. And from the outside, the person's life they, they look like this superhuman. When you when you see all that they're doing, especially women, because we we're, we're such like maternal and caretakers, and it's like your day it, it never ends. Your day never ends. How many mm-hmm. people though? It's in the and the, people are starting to try to push back, but there's something. In our world, that it's a very do world where you 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 can be just overwhelmed with stuff. From if you go to church, people want you to do stuff at church, stuff in the community, stuff at work, stuff with your family. It's just nonstop. And I hear some people even now, more and more, especially with like the COVID opening up. I hear people now telling me it's coming too fast. It's too much. You can hear the overwhelm. So what you what you just said, I'm hearing more and more people saying that now. Like, I, I can't get a minute to myself. It's just too much. How can we – you said you, you, you said, you know, a lot of people see this as an awakening when they have a health crisis or some crisis in their life, but five years later you slowly went back. And it is so – in my own life I've seen where I said I'm not going to do something anymore, and then I slowly creep back. Have you – found a way, whether working with clients, observing yourself, how can we stop doing something like get off a treadmill, et cetera, and not slowly go back to it? I, we have to, well, it goes back to my mission statement that you said at the beginning, Denise. It's conscious, positive, and I'll add the word intentional, intentional. So I will. I walk every single day without issue. If it's a horrible, horrible weather outside, I'll get on the ancient old treadmill or it doesn't matter. I intentionally take that time. I look at it for me as a form of meditation because I'm present. And that's, I think a lot of us, I hope what COVID taught us is to be more present, to be in the moment. I go back to those years long ago, and sure, I was sitting at the table with my children and my, and my husband for dinner, but I'm not sure I was, all, I know I wasn't always present. So it's about being an intentional. Some people start with gratitude journals in the morning. That's not something that I've become accustomed to. I do do keep up my journals now. I walk every day. I intentionally schedule my day so that I have time to myself. And I know that's not easy for everyone. I understand. I mean, uh, what COVID did in terms of families being at home and homeschooling really tested us to the maximum I think that any of us could ever have been tested. And if we were able to manage that, and, and, you know, everybody did to some degree, I think it's now time to say, what did I learn from all of that? And it is about taking a step back. But if you just get up in the morning and go about your day and you're not intentional about these things, it will it'll take you over again, no question about it. And we have to say no in a very kind way. Um, I was asked to, uh, to, oh, this is going to sound not so great right now because I shouldn't have said no to this, but I'll share it with you. Um, we haven't had book signings for, uh, you know, a year and a half now. Uh, I put out a, my latest book back in October, and we had an event, a whole book signing, local book signing event in Windsor, uh, ran by another local author, and we got it got canceled because we went into lockdown, another form of lockdown. So someone said to me, hey, Lynn, let, let's get this up and back and running. Would you organize it? And I declined. Not because I don't want to do a book signing. I can't wait to do a book signing. But I am not in the position to take that much time away from me, from my life, to organize an event on such a big uh, scale 
that I know is going to eat me up and spit me out for probably a couple of months. So I decline. I'm happy to help, but I will not be the organizer. And that's something I love yeah. to do. So if that's an example that people can, you know, it, it, yeah, I, I, I love to do it, but I'm not taking on that level of responsibility. Good for you. You look, you know, you know where each person you looking out for yourself, and I think that's something. And you know, it's so odd. I thought, I thought too with COVID. I said, I feel like the universe or, or God is telling us to slow down, and you, you all mm. won't do it on your own. So him, I want to put you in a situation where you have to. But I don't think it's going to change anything. I'm telling you, we, mm. as we come out of it, with some some cases with the variant rising again, I'm telling you. People are going at a frantic pace, at least, at least around me, right after it came. It's like just almost going even faster trying to make up for whatever was didn't happen during COVID. I'm starting to see it already. We we have to, like mm. you said, be more intentional yeah. so we don't get caught up in this trap or it gets even worse. And, see, we're not there yet in Ontario. We, we, we're we just about to open up our third stage next Friday. So we've been baby steps, baby steps, baby steps. Uh, so I haven't seen that yet. I am seeing people desperate. I mean, I saw um, um, four of my best friends last week and got to hug them for the first time. You know, that's the kind of thing that really is happening here is people are getting together again and, and being with each other and, and and really understanding the value of human connection outside of, the virtual world. So that's where we are from my perspective and the, and the group that I have. Um, but once we open up again next week, um, Denise, you might be right. I might be seeing the exact same thing here. Yeah, you, wait, wait, wait till you've been open about a month. You, hopefully you mm. don't. Hopefully, hopefully you don't see it. But a one, one, I mean, I'm telling you, that it, it hit. Hopefully it's different where you are. Not not all businesses here are even back in the state, so mm. hopefully people will will uh, navigate it differently. Now, what inspired you? What inspired you, Lynn, to actually share? Because I think an autobiography is very personal, and it affects every everybody who's mentioned in it. Anybody who would know you, who would read it. What inspired you to share your story with others and staring through it? I think the first one was uh, symptoms helping people understand that we can't ignore them. Um, we, we can't get caught up in our own life. And, and, you know, it's interesting. When I think of all my symptoms, Denise, I mean, I had tinnitus. I had dizziness. I had headaches. I had lightheadedness. I had nausea. But I never actually sat there and consciously thought, are all these things connected? I saw an audiologist. Mm. I saw my optometrist. I never actually thought. And, you know, maybe there was avoidance there. Maybe I knew something was wrong and I just didn't know, want, want to know about it. Maybe I was too afraid. I have no idea. But, you know, when we see symptoms, new symptoms for us that occur on a regular basis that we never had before, we really need to be going to check them out. So that was the first premise of the book. And then the whole thing about decision making and treatment options and and not judging others if you don't agree. And then you won't, what do you say to someone you know who's about to go in for a, a, a life-threatening surgery? Those were all the things that we, we found awkward. Um, and, and I just I wrote the book to try to help people through it. And it, it doesn't matter if it's a brain tumor or any, any type of life-threatening illness or crisis. I think there's lots of things in here that would help people. Uh, uh, thank you for sharing your story. Again, somebody it might help somebody to reduce their fear and they and they get checked out if they know their symptoms earlier, so they don't have to. Um, it's maybe not as difficult, although a brain mm-hmm. tumor isn't easy whenever you ca- catch it. Now, how did writing the book? Did you write it as you were going through certain things, or after it was all over? And how did writing the book help you to navigate? the changes that you were experiencing? Well, I took it from the journal entry. So um, once I was, once I, once I discovered and figured out the new me, because I'm definitely a new me, <laughs> you know, I had, I had lots of issues to work through after the surgery. Um, um, I, you know, cognitively I was in a really bad place. I did have speech, which was fantastic, but there was a lot of rehab, a lot of, a, a lot of things I had to do for a long time. Um, and so when I was of sound mind, that's when I started taking those journal entries and deciding what was going to happen. Um, the journal entries are, are, are exactly what they were. I will say that some grammar had to be corrected because, you know, after my surgery, I wasn't exactly some grammar and punctuation and sentence flow had to be. But the journal entries are exactly them. So I, I basically tell, do a little lead-in 
and then there's the journal entry. I do a lead-in, and then there's a journal entry, and then there's the entries from my family. Um, and then I started talking publicly about it. I did book talks. I, 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 uh, I've, I've spoken uh, about the experience with other people. I've counseled people through process. I've had coffee time with people to try to help, help them um, through similar experiences, and also family members because we need to – and that's part of the reason I wrote my second book too because we need to talk about caregivers. Um, we go through our own things as patients or the, or, or the individual who's struggling, but caregivers go through so much too. And we need support as caregivers always. And sometimes I think we're, we just think we're invincible. Well, it's not happening to me. I'm just here as your support. But sometimes we're being taken down just as well, and, and we, need to, we need to be cautious and, and cognizant of our own health. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. And I've heard, you know, you gotta, you need to have somebody come in and give a give a caregiver a break. What have readers been saying about staring through it? Oh, it's it's been fantastic. Now, mind you, the first edition was in 2017. I I put out a second edition in 2019 after discovering all the mistakes I made <laughs> as an indie author and doing it in a better way. So, I mean, it's it's a couple of years out now. Um, but I, I've had rave reviews from, from uh, uh, someone who was going through a divorce said that he got some inspiring thoughts through this. I mean, I talk about humor. I tell a story in the book where I'm floating around the pool with a couple of my friends. I think it was like six days before my surgery. And uh, somebody started joking about giving my tumor a name and they came up with all these funny names. And I said, no, no, you know, they thought it was funny and we were all laughing. But I refused to give the tumor a name because in my mind that gave it an identity and I wasn't going to do that. But you know, there are ways to get through it where you first have to, and that's why the subtitle, acceptance, survival, and then healing. So accepting it, taking charge, taking control of what you can take control of and letting the other stuff go. I had no control over what that surgical team was going to do for nine hours. I had control on what I was going to do to get ready for it. And I had control on my plan for afterwards, but I didn't have any control on that day once I made my treatment option and I realized I had to have a craniotomy. So... Um, no, it's had great reviews and it's helped a lot of people, and I'm very, very proud of it. Oh, awesome, awesome! Now, how soon after you finished writing, staring through it, did you sit down and start writing on Jackson? And is Jackson a work of fiction? Oh, that's a, that's an that's an okay. So total shift now. <laughs> so um, Jackson is a fictional book, but it's based on real life experiences, and it really does stem from uh, the premise is mental illness in families, uh, a mother and and her adult son. This stems from uh, my work as a superintendent. Um, I worked with many many people who. Um, uh, were struggling with mental health, specifically anxiety because of the role that I was in. And in my own personal life, some of my friends were having that same experience themselves or with their children. And then my own daughter, it became debilitating for her in her 20s. So, and I journaled. I was journaling all through that time as a mom, and I was trying to save her, save her, save her. You need to do cognitive behavior therapy. You need to do this. You need to do that. And, um, so the, the book is a compilation of experiences. I interviewed several other parents. I interviewed other people who were experiencing extreme anxiety and depression to the point that it was debilitating for them. And I created these two characters called June and Jackson. June, for me, I would say it's, June is 70% what happened in my life. And Jackson is probably about 40% of, of my daughter. But it's, even though it's fictional, it is, it is real life. And I go back to the caregiver role. I go back to this mom and I write about it in the book just the way it happened to me of getting to the point where the fo- your phone is always in your hand. If, if you see a text message from the person who's struggling, you go into a panic attack. You, you can't walk into a room without being fearful because you're afraid of what you're going to uh, find on the other side of the door. And it becomes debilitating for you as well. It's your mental health. It's not a mental illness, but it becomes debilitating for you as well. So I wrote that book, uh, I mean, it's just been steering through it, came out in 2009, uh, I'd say about a year. It was about a year after um, the second edition of Steering Through It, going back to the question that you asked me of when. Uh, but it, 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 too, is a compilation of experiences, telling it from two sides of the story. And what I'm, I'm going to just go ahead here, Denise, and just explain how I had a lot of trouble writing the character of Jackson. And I met a woman. Her name is Yvonne Mars. She's a writer out of the, out of the U.K., who has debilitating anxiety. 
she and I went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth on a shared Google Doc so she could help me get into the mindset of someone who was experiencing that level of panic, panic attacks, all of those kinds of things. I had help writing that character. And when the book was all done, I shared it with my daughter. She could see where she was in it. She also gave me some additional advice. Maybe you want to think about this. This is where I would have seen it. So although the book is not about her, she was certainly involved in the creation of it, but with a great deal of outside help. I think I'll stop Ah. there because I just went off again. (laughs) No, you're doing awesome. (laughs) I wanted to ask you, uh, so how old is Jackson? What is Jackson's family like? I know Jackson's dealing with anxiety, but how old is Jackson? What is what is Jackson's like profession, and what's Jackson's family like? To just tell our listeners a little bit more uh, uh, describing Jackson and Jackson's personality. Sure. So June is a financial advisor. She works out of the house, the mom, and the dad is an electrician. So they both are, you know, have their own personal businesses. Uh, Jackson is a single a single child. Uh, and the beginning of the book goes, even though the book is written when he's about 25 years, it goes back in time because, because I thought it was very important for parents to see some of the signs and symptoms when children are struggling because 70% of mental illness starts in childhood or adolescence. So we go back in time to when Jackson was a toddler, Jackson was two, when Jackson was four, and some of the behaviors and the things that were observed that the parents, you know, like we all do, Oh, yeah, yeah, terrible tooth. Oh, we have all heard about terrible tooth, temper tantrums. This is just a temper tantrum. But then other things start to occur, and it's not until in this book, Jackson is in grade five, where they, where they really get a full assessment done to find out what's happening and, and, and change the way they respond to him uh, based on what they learn about anxiety. So even though he's 25 years in the book, so basically we take him through his childhood, his struggles through college, he ends up moving into an environmental degree, uh, uh, does move into the city of Toronto, but each, all through his life, you, you, you actually understand what it's like to think with an anxious mind, to have those demons in your head because of the way Jackson expresses himself, and then his struggles as well. I mean, he goes through blaming, you know, I, I, Blame everybody else for this. Why is this happening to me? I don't understand this. He's substance abuse. Um, all, uh, suicidal. There's a suicidal attempt to give everyone a, and it is an attempt <laughs> to give everyone that, that um, uh, prelude to the book. Um, and, but, but in the end, these two people come together, and the mother has to get help for herself. And, and we go through that whole process of how she gets help to get to the point where she knows she can be there with love and hope and support for her son but she cannot save him. And that is the hardest mm. thing for parents for us to wrap our heads around. And then wow. Jackson at the end of the book, it does end in a positive way, just to let people know. But it's real. This is happening all around us. And I oh, mean, yeah. The, uh, the, we have a, the largest mental health teaching hospital up here in Canada. It's called the Center for Addictions and Mental Health. And they did a national survey at the beginning of COVID. Um, and, of course, we all know that our mental health has suffered um, to, to a very, very large degree during COVID. But um, if we can understand what people are going through and we understand what mental illness is, even if it's not affecting us, 50% of us, they're saying, will have a mental illness by the time we're 40. 50%. <laughs> you know, that, and if it's not affecting us personally, it's probably very likely with those percentages going to affect someone we know or we love or a colleague. So uh, my premise with Jackson was if we know about it, if we understand it, if we go on to see some of these sites and research it more, then maybe we're better inclined to pick up the phone and call and check on someone. Because that old added question, I wrote a blog post about this a few weeks ago, how are you today? None of us are answering that, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> we need to ask different questions. We need to ask different questions because sometimes talking to someone is the first step to actually getting um, the help that we need. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah so you know, his whole life really until, until he's about 25 years old. That's where the book ends. Oh, my goodness. This, this story sounds so just phenomenal and that people really – 
I can just think of kids in college. They said more and more kids in college are seeking uh, mental health issues that you don't think. Mm-hmm. You think people are happy, everything's fine. And they say a lot of it has to do with our lifestyle in our world. When I was a kid, you knew your neighbors. And people people interacted with each other face-to-face a lot more. It was mm-hmm. almost like get, picking up the phone and talking to somebody. People would say, why don't you just go visit them? Why don't you just go over there? Now we don't even pick up the phone and talk to people. It's, it's, you're, you're texting people or you're on the social media talking talking to people and you're not you're not talking on the phone and you're not having a face a face so they did us they did i was i was watching a show and they said one of the one of the root causes of like depression and anxiety is loneliness that people some people go days without having a face-to-face interaction with another human being and they've done studies like even with uh, people in prisons when you give them like a dog or a pet to care for they get they feel get better they feel better we can't live mm-hmm. just in our own little world being isolated and our world's changed where they what did i uh, another stat i heard was that kids now spend less time outside than a a person in maximum security prison because in a maximum security prison you have to they they make them go outside a certain amount of time kids are in a, all day long they don't go outside they're in their room they video mm-hmm. they video games they're not they unless going to school and they said we're asking for trouble we are asking well, for well and the transition when 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 the schools open again to in person it's going to be a very difficult transition for a lot of our students especially those who were already experiencing anxiety and then have been in this bubble for this amount of time i will add to that though from my experience as well that uh in in my daughter's situation it was childhood trauma i think i'll never know i'll never know for sure but there was uh, several hospitalizations and some childhood trauma that i think was the trigger that we didn't address as early in her life as we could have and should have but you can't do that, right? You can't go back and say, what, I, what, could, what could I have done differently? What should I have done differently? Um, but there are lots of different reasons for it. But the key is the earlier, the earlier we can determine when someone is struggling or ourselves are struggling, the earlier we can get the help we need and, and then shut down that lifelong um, ups and downs. Shut it down or at least slow it down and make it manageable. My daughter's doing amazing today. She's a gym rock. She's discovered athleticism. She was always an athlete in high school. Um, she is a gym rat. She's actually inviting situations where she would before not be able to walk in to prove to herself now that she can do it. And she didn't do formal counseling. I'm not saying there, I, I wish she had, but she found other ways. And there's lots of other ways that people are finding at least the first step. They're using Reiki and yoga and mindfulness and all kinds of these alternative, um, alternative. And sometimes the answer is a combination of the medical and the alternative. Sometimes it's one, sometimes it's the other. But if everybody could just, if people who are struggling could take one baby step and find that one thing that makes a difference, then that's, that's the first step to take them away from that ledge that we never want anyone to go to. What a blessing, though, that you were there to, sub- you. she had enough support to have enough confidence that she could do it. I mean, that's just a, a beautiful, uh, to me, a statement about your family. She had enough support that she knew she could do it. Can can you tell us about Jackson's parents? Um, particularly, mm-hmm. is her father is he is he really involved in her life, or is he kind of uh, uh, not so much? And and her mother June particularly is she is she somebody as she starts to see Jackson starting to struggle, does she want to try to control it and 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 really almost control her life so this. She doesn't have to see her daughter struggle. What, what is her parents' involvement in her life like for Jackson? June is very much reflective of me. So, yes, the mother, June, is, is trying to save her son, is, is always there, is the person he calls because she becomes his crutch. That's the other piece of this, right? She becomes his crutch to the point where if he's starting to feel something, he's calling her and she's walking him through a process. And, unfortunately, what she does is she takes that away from him having to do that. So he's not learning to take those baby steps because she's trying to save him. She's trying to be in control. The father, Jackson's father, is an electrician, and he's in and out of the book, not so much. But the, the, the June is taking the lead. So now they, the two of them do go to counseling together. The two parents go to counseling together. Uh, and, and you read in the book the, the arguments they have, the disagreements they have, because they see things a different way. 
Um, Craig is the name of the father in this book, and Craig sees uh, very much of it as um, he's got, he'll figure this out, he'll figure this out, he'll figure this out, and June sees it as a total opposite. So that, that debate going back, that, that um, what's the word, um, uh, conflict in their marriage is very much in that book. But you don't, you don't, you don't hear from Craig quite as much as you do as the mom, from the mom. So what is the specific, for our listeners, the specific mental illness Jackson deals with? Is there like a, a name to it or is it just anxiety or social anxiety? Uh, what, what, is, what is Jackson? Do they ever find out what the problem is? That is a great question, and I grappled with that. And I consulted with a social worker friend of mine. His name is Alan Goya. He wrote the introduction to the book, actually. And the diagnosis changes, right? So in Jackson's case, he was first diagnosed in, at grade five, I think, as an anxious child. And then by the time he was leaving secondary school, it was formal anxiety. And then there was talk about borderline personality disorder. There was talk about anxiety and depression combined. And what I landed on in the book is regardless of what the diagnosis is, it's about knowing how to address it and what the plan has to be going forward. Because if you have a mental illness, you have a mental illness. It's not going to disappear. But your life can be manageable. Your life can be beautiful. Your life can be wonderful. You can meet all of the goals and the expectations that you want to if you know how to manage it. So we didn't land on a diagnosis in, in Jackson other than going through the formal reports to say anxiety. And then there was some talk between he and his mother about could it be borderline personality disorder. But in the end, they let that go and just move forward with what he needs to be better. I'll, you know what, I think that's great because another thing, and this is shocking to me, and I'm, I really appreciate that you wrote this book, Jackson, is, and I encourage our readers, to, uh, listeners to get, a, to get a copy, especially those who might be struggling and know someone who is, they could give it to someone as a gift. But um, it, it, it's amazing how we, we often don't want to don't talk about it, but I have heard mm-hmm. that they, mental health psych, psych Brain mental health prescriptions are being prescribed for infants, I'm told. And they say a lot of it is just because, this is what I appreciate about what you just shared, rather than give it a title, what can we do to help Jackson be able to navigate this his life journey in this world more smoothly and, 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 and with more joy and more peace. But they said, a doctor said that a lot of people are medicating who would go to a doctor to get a pill for a, a three-month-old or a six-month-old because the baby's crying a lot? I think that is absurd. And he said a lot mm-hmm. of a lot of us are medicating like kids because we just don't want them to be a kid. Yeah, we want them and to we, act I like they're forty years old when they're only yeah. six. <laughs> I do tackle medica- me? medication in the book. I do. Um, and, and the beginning is the child is the child counselor that Jackson goes to and is trying to get him to understand what his triggers are and some mindfulness strategies. But later in his life, um, when when he's not able to get out of, bed, out of bed and becomes dependent, there there is a period of time where he tries medications. I won't tell you what happens in the end with that, but he takes charge and makes decisions for himself that June doesn't agree with. But <laughs> and there are certainly some types of mental illness where medication is. Uh, schizophrenia, for right. an example. I mean, right. you, right. it, there's just no question about it. So right. there's no easy answer there, but there are alternatives that I mean, think I think as parents we explore all possibilities, and medication might be one depending upon what the diagnosis is or what we think is happening. But it's not the only one, and, no, and it's certainly not a mandatory. <laughs> and you don't want to no. overmedicate where you're taking too many pills, all those side effects. And it, mm-hmm. could, it could take you forever to get your brain normalized. It, it, it really Agreed. is. Yeah. It, it's, a, it's a very important topic. Now, did you work in psychology? And if not, Lynn, where did you get the material that you, 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 you write about and focus on in Jackson? I do have a degree in psychology, believe it or not. And if you know what, you know the age-old question, if you didn't do the career that you're currently in, what would you do? I would have gone to be a practicing clinician, uh, a psychologist, I think. I just find it so ah. fascinating. But it was also very much a part of my work. My, my work in, in, as an educator, first as a teacher and then as a principal and as a superintendent, was very, uh, really focused, I'd say, for the majority of my, car, my career on supporting children with special education needs. So there's a lot of psych, there's a lot of that, you know, embedded in that when you read 
a report on a student, you know, about a student that talks about cognitive functioning and executive functioning. That's all, it's all it was all embedded in, in what I did for, for at least the last 15 years of my career, too. So a lot of it was research. Um, I only researched um, reputable sites. You know, there's so much misinformation out there. Same thing what I would say to people about the brain tumor piece. If you get a diagnosis and you just Google it, you're going to put yourself in a terrible, terrible position. You need to go to medical sites, reputable medical sites to do your research. Um, and, and don't go on to these sites where people are just talking about this and that and, oh, my brother had this and my sister had that. It's not going to help you. Um, yeah, so it was very much research, but my own personal experience and, 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 and the experiences of other people around me, as I said, that, that formed those two characters. Thank you for sharing that about don't go on Google and don't go on. <laughs> you know what? This is, I could tell you nothing about the body, but something that had happened with a car I used to have, and that's one of the first things I did. I went online and I scared myself to death with all these people sharing experiences that they had, and it ended up being an easy fix. I'm a totally different topic, but that is so important, and it's so tempting to go online and think and listen to other people and <laughs> think you have what you need and you don't. I'm so mm-hmm. glad you shared that. I am so glad you shared that. In addition to writing books, as we come down to the end of the day show, you also counsel aspiring authors. Can you tell us uh, what are the type of services you you offer to aspiring authors? Well, I, uh, uh, a short time ago, I, I connected with uh, an amazing lady called content creator, uh, Tracy Reagan from Australia, and she and I have actually gotten together uh, through the EssentialAcademy.org um, to create. It's called Dare to Write. She is a children's book editor. She's a children's book writer, and she's a children's book publisher. And I was at the opposite, and I was I I I, I need editing. Like I'll be really clear, my both both of my books I had full content edits for. She had that level of expertise, and I had figured out, like I said, when I I went and did the second edition of Steering Through It, and figured out all the mistakes I made, so that I help other people not make the same mistakes. So between the two of us, we've created this course. But I also offer one-hour consultations for um, with a whole variety of subjects, mostly around. Once you've published your book and, or you're about to publish and you need help with marketing and promotion. But I would encourage anybody who's about to launch to go to my YouTube channel because when I was about to launch Jackson nine weeks before, I started to do weekly updates on what my launch team and I were doing. So all of those things leading up, because regardless, as you well know, Denise, it doesn't matter how you publish it, whether, what are the, whether you go traditional, hybrid, uh, small press, or indie, you are going to be responsible for your own promotion and marketing unless you hire a publicist, and you're, we're in competition with how many hundreds of thousands of books that oh, are published yeah. every single year, and so mm-hmm. there are some tricks and some things that are out there that I had no idea about, so between the two of us, that's what we do, um, and it's all on my website under Time to Publish, it's called, but go to the playlist on YouTube uh, called Time to Publish if you're, if you're going to launch in the next two months or three months. Three months is what I say. You need to really start working at it three months before. And there's a lot of tips in there that are free, and, and anybody can take them. What top three mistakes have you seen new authors make, and how can they avoid those mistakes? What are the top three that you keep coming across? Well, well over the, one, over the first one, the one that I made, I didn't understand distribution at all. I had no idea the power of distribution. So you can be an indie author and upload your book onto Amazon. That's great. It's there. You share that it's on Amazon, but you're, you're not getting the distribution that you should. I mean, my, Jackson and I went with a hybrid um, publisher that has full distribution worldwide, uh, you know, in every possible store you can think about, online, et cetera, et cetera. And that, that to me was important to do. But indie authors now have a lot of opportunities. They didn't have five or ten years ago to do those kinds of things. But you have to know that it's not just Amazon. And there's a lot of dispute about Amazon lately, <laughs> too, as well. So um, distribution, I think, is, is the first one. Uh, the second one is taking too many shortcuts. And then the quality of, of the final product is not anywhere near as, as good or as it should be. Uh, and we really do a disservice to indie authors when we, we don't follow a process. And when, you, when you're an independent author, you have full control, DIY, right, do it yourself, and it's, you should be, I mean, it's maybe, I'm not talking about a children's book. I'm talking about a full nonfiction or a fiction book as an example, a romance, things like, or the kinds of books that you write, Denise. You really need to follow a process to have the proper editing done. The, the yeah. cover design, I would say, would be the third one. So, uh, so distribution, don't take any shortcuts, and 
I, when I was um, designing the cover of Jackson, I walked through uh, two of our local bookstores, and I couldn't find anything that I had in my mind, not one book. I wanted a double image. I wanted the mother with the son. And so when the design cover was being done, I, I actually had three rounds of it going back and forth until I got it exactly the way I wanted to. If your book cover is not catchy, anyone who yeah. doesn't really know what they want and is looking around yeah. is going to walk right on by, right on yeah, by. I, so I, distribution, I, don't take shortcuts, and spend time on that cover. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That book cover. <laughs> That book cover, and some people make a lot of money just Kindle Unlimited, strictly Amazon. How they do it, I do not know. I don't know how they do it. I know a lot, most of them write, or a lot of them, series books, and so they just mm-hmm. build an audience. Yes. But and Amazon I, ads I, too. Amazon ads really help. They do. Yeah, and distribution. Mm-hmm. Dis- distribute, but you got to know how to work those Amazon ads, or you can end up spending a lot of money and not getting You're a, right. a result from it. But but distribution, there's just so many different things, uh, and, and and a lot of it is trial and error, and and some people just get good at it, and the industry keeps cha- changing so much. We're coming down to the to the close. But when and why did you launch Taking the Helm? Tell us about Taking the Helm. Well, um, Taking the Helm was about a year after I retired, and I just met so many women entrepreneurs that didn't even know were out here in this world. It was so fantastic, and there were so many stories. I just thought, okay. I need to create a platform, like a lot of people. I'm not, I mean, there's many podcast hosts like, like us, but I wanted to give a platform for little people like me. I mean, you know what I mean by little people. I'm not, no celebrities. They're just people who are doing things every day, who've experienced something and gotten through. And I've done just over 70, I think, interviews now. I'm booked wow. right from November. Like, it's craziness. I know you are, too. You're booked far, far in ahead because there's just so much out there that people need to share. Uh, can I add one little thing at the end here, Denise, if you don't mind? Because Go right my ahead. Niece, this is the very first time I'm trying traditional publishing, and it's part of what I'm trying to do, you know, helping, helping people through the publishing path is experience this as well. And my niece and I, the same thing about anxiety. She's a social worker. Her name is Amber Raymond. We've just written a children's book series, and our, our premise is to teach children at the age of four not only to identify their emotions, because there's a lot of that out there, but strategies so that if I'm feeling angry, this is something I can do. And then they practice those strategies, ah. and their parents and guardians and caregivers practice those strategies. So we've just sent out, uh, we've just gone to, oh, 60 literary agents, and we're going to sit back, and, I'm gonna, and hopefully in about a year I'll be able to help people through that process too and understand the hows and the do's and how to write a query letter properly and all those kinds of things as well. So I just, I just wanted to throw that in at the end. Tell us what's the name of the what's the name of the book and what's your you said your niece what's her name again so her people can look at her name is Amber Raymond her name is Amber okay. Raymond I think she's listening in right now Amber um, Raymond the series, okay yeah the series right now is called the Power of Thought we've uh, fully completed thought. three of the books and we're uh, we're uh, we've got drafts of our our next two so yeah oh it's a book Power series. Of the power of thought it's a book series you know and i hope you get it in into schools i know trade the trade that could end up being somewhat well maybe not it's not nonfiction. if it's or if it's nonfiction, it can trade books are really where the money is you get it in schools and different organizations and i wish you much success with the power of thought and it's good that thank it's a you. book series it's good that it's a book thank series. you very much yeah it is a nonfiction children's book series series yeah <laughs> Okay. Can you tell us where you are on social media for those who might want to find you on social media? Yeah, I'm on I'm on Twitter, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Facebook. I've got a business page on Facebook. But if you go to my website, lynnmclaughlin.com, and you've already spelled my name, all of my social media links are on there, my blog, my podcast, my books. Everything is all in one place. That's where I take people to. Um, yeah, one-stop shopping. <laughs> and where can people get copies of your books? Are they in print, audio book? Are they in e-book? Yeah. No, they are. Oh, 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 my goodness. Thanks for, thank you for asking. Uh, Jackson, um, Marnie Young Hall, who is her, now her, her name is Audio Sorceress. She's down in, I want to say South Carolina. Oh, my God, she's brilliant. She narrated uh, Steering Through It for me alone. She was alone at the time. Uh, she changed voices. Every, you know, it was really amazing. And then uh, through, a, through her Canadian branch up here, Jackson was just professionally narrated by, by two amazing people playing the mother and the son. So they're both on audiobook. They're on ebook. 
They're on Apple Books. Well, and they're on um, uh, soft cover. Jackson's in a hardcover too, but not steering through it. Yeah, they're all available through Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, really Indigo. Um, you can probably find it anywhere you find books. I'm not sure about down in the states, um, but definitely on Amazon. Oh, that is awesome. We have we're at, out of time. We've had the absolute pleasure of of interviewing Lynn McLaughlin. She's the author of the books Jackson, Staring Through It, and Look for Power of Thought. And it's a, a nonfiction mm-hmm. children's book. She's working on with her niece, and I want to say her name is Amber Raymond. So look for Lynn McLaughlin and Amber's book, The Power of Thought. And you can check Lynn out online at lynnmclaughlin.com, and that's L-Y-N-N-M-C-L-A-U-G-H-L-I-N.com, lynnmclaughlin.com. Again, Jackson, steering through it and coming, The Power of Thought. Thank you so <laughs> Thank much, you. Lynn, for being here with us today. Uh, we, what a blessing that you were, and, and, and she has services she off, offers at our website, lynnmclaughlin.com, for aspiring authors. It might help save you some money and help you get your book ready for launch uh, as you go out. So check that out again, lynnmclaughlin.com. Check out her website, and you can bookmark her website to keep up with what she's doing. Thank you for tuning in to Off the Shelf to our listeners. As I always tell you, you are awesome. You are incredible. You're phenomenal. Go out and create a fabulous day for yourself. See you back here next Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. We'll bring you another awesome guest. Lynn, I'll shoot you an email when the show finishes streaming. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Bye for now.